Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Market for Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, Head of Thought Leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on June 16th, 2023. Now, we have a real treat in store for our listeners today. Guggenheim Investments has just dropped a new thought leadership publication called Quarterly Macro Themes, which features the brilliant work and research of our macroeconomic and investment research group. This new publication, which will be released in the last month of every quarter, like June for the second quarter, is an exciting addition to our stable of regularly issued thought leadership. You can find the new issue on our website at guggenheiminvestments.com slash perspectives. It's also in the podcast show notes. Now, today we will review the very first issue of Quarterly Macro Themes with its three main contributors, and we will close with a listener question regarding a prior episode of ours. So, joining us today are three leaders of our macroeconomic and investment research group, Matt Bush, Managing Director and U.S. Economist, Maria Giraldo, Managing Director and Investment Strategist, and Paul Dozier, a director and an economist with our group. Well, thanks again for being with us here. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Jay. Great to be here. And welcome, Maria. Thanks, Jay. Always happy to be on. And welcome, Paul. Thanks, Jay. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, again, guys, let's start just with a description of the quarterly macro themes, or QMT, as we sometimes call it. What are its purposes and goals? What will readers find in each issue? What won't they find? And what should they be taking away from this publication? The quarterly macro themes really is an opportunity to take a look at the work of our group, the macroeconomic and investment research group. We're responsible for doing the research and the analytical work that really sets the top-down macro views for Guggenheim that feeds into the activities of the other teams in our investment process. So the sector teams, the portfolio construction group, and the portfolio management team. Each issue of the QMT will begin with a short update on the macro outlook and then showcase three or four themes that the macro group creates as part of its regular work. And some of our work can get pretty wonky, but we tend to choose themes based on their timeliness, their accessibility, and their application to portfolio strategy. Each theme also has to be concisely summarized in text and with the help of two to three charts. Our goal is not to just, just show the consensus kind of boilerplate thinking that everyone else is putting out but instead show the kind of rigorous research we're doing that underpins all of our investment process. And that's going into our discussions with portfolio managers and traders as we form our house views. So we hope that readers and listeners to this podcast will take away a differentiated perspective from what they might hear from other sources in the financial information landscape. Like the rest of our thought leadership, we hope they find it useful in their own investment process. Well, that's a terrific summary. Thank you all. But let's dive in. Uh, let's get started and go through the first issue, which starts off with an update to our macro outlook. And this piece is entitled, A Fed-Induced Recession is Still in the Pipeline. Matt, why don't you walk us through it? Great. Really, to just set the stage before we get into the more thematic content of the publication, our macro view that's been in place for some time now really remains unchanged. And that is that the Fed continues to tell us they're on tent on slowing down the economy a message that was reinforced by their hawkish dot plot at the June FOMC meeting that showed two more rate hikes this year. 
the Fed's really responding to backward-looking data that admittedly does look quite strong. Inflation stuck around 5%. Non-farm payroll growth is averaged over 300,000 per month this year. But looking at the forward-looking data, we see a different signal. It suggests inflation will cool significantly in the second half of this year. And under the surface, the labor market is starting to show some cracks. So the Fed staying restrictive in the face of this data is still likely to lead to a recession starting in the second half of this year, in our view, especially when you add on headwinds from stresses in the banking system and a withdrawal of liquidity as the Treasury ramps up issuance post-debt ceiling. But I think it's important to point out we don't see this coming recession as a total negative development, especially for fixed income investors. As we'll talk about, there's a number of reasons to expect a, a pretty mild recession, which means that higher quality credits are already compensating you for credit risk. And when you think about the disinflation a recession will cause, that should lead to lower long-term interest rates, helping drive some returns from duration. Well, thanks for that summary, Matt. Now, again, if anyone is listening and they want to read the full macro outlook piece and, and the chart that goes with it, please visit our website. But Matt, let's stick with you. Let's go to the first two themes of the publication, both of which were contributed by Matt, and they are related to, to the outlook and the economic cycle. The first one is called Tightening Bank Lending Standards Point to Potential Funding Gaps, and the second is Industry Trends and Labor Market Rebalancing Suggest More Moderate Recession Severity. So Matt, give us a summary here of these two themes. What data are you looking at that demonstrate tighter lending standards and what kind of impact do you think this set of conditions portends? Sure. So, you know, these two themes kind of are a, a glass half empty view first and then a glass half full view. So kind of the negative development we're seeing, and to your question, the main metric we track for tight lending standards is the Fed Senior Loan Officer Opinion Survey. For a variety of loan types, it tracks the share of banks tightening lending standards each quarter. And what we've seen in this data is that even before the episode of bank stress back in March, lending standards had tightened significantly, uh, really as a result of aggressive rate hikes by the Fed and a more negative economic outlook. So post the Silicon Valley Bank episode in March, we saw a further tightening in this survey. And we know from past cycles that a tightening in lending standards of this magnitude typically leads to a pullback in business investment and in consumer spending. And so in our view, this tightening in standards is clearly a negative economic signal. And if we think about, you know, really the credit environment more broadly, we're already seeing a material slowdown. We have a chart in the publication that shows a negative credit impulse or a slowdown in the growth rate of credit outstanding, both from banks and non-banks. And typically this negative credit impulse is associated with weak economic growth. So we already had a negative reading as of Q1 of this year. And we think that as banks become more conservative in their lending, this environment of deposit outflows and slowing economic growth, we expect a further slowdown in credit growth is going to add to recessionary headwinds for the economy. And this more difficult credit environment is particularly important to point out at a time when households and businesses are growing more and more reliant on credit to maintain spending levels after burning through a lot of the savings that they had accumulated during the pandemic years. Well, the world runs on credit, so uh, I understand what you're saying uh, and how tightening lending standards are both a feature of and a contributor to an economic slowdown. But to, to talk more about your second theme here, there are other metrics that you watch uh, when you're thinking about uh, the economic cycle. So why do you think an economic slowdown will be relatively mild and what might this mean for investors? 
Yeah, we walk through a couple different factors in the publication that are all supportive of a mild or at least moderate recession view. First, we continue to view both household and corporate fundamentals as relatively healthy. When we compare metrics like debt service ratios to how they looked compared to prior recessions, we just don't see the kind of imbalances that typically amplify recessions and make them worse. There's also some fairly unique sectoral trends going on in the economy right now. Typically in a recession, two of the hardest hit sectors are housing and autos. But these two sectors are already beaten down and are unlikely to be the same kind of drag they typically are as the rest of the economy goes into recession. Uh, on the housing side, we've already seen housing subtract from real GDP growth for the past eight quarters. So it's basically already gone through its recession. And then semiconductor shortages have suppressed auto sales and auto production really since 2020. And with the supply situation getting much better there, it's pretty likely that improved production and pent up demand for auto sales is going to cushion some of the normal recessionary impact from that sector. And then it's also just worth taking stock of what we've learned from the economic data over the past year. Last year in mid 2022 with inflation so high, it was widely expected and predicted. We need to see significant economic pain to get the labor market back into balance and to get inflation down. But over the past year, we've seen a big fall in labor demand as proxied by job openings. And that decline in job openings has occurred without a big rise in unemployment, which is historically unprecedented. Typically, lower openings means higher unemployment. So there's still more work to do in getting inflation down and getting the labor market back in balance. We think it will take some economic damage to get all the way back to sustainable levels that the Fed is seeking. But I think the ultimate magnitude of that damage is going to be smaller than many had predicted a year ago, just based on the relatively painless rebalancing that we've seen so far in the economy. You know, in terms of what this means for investors, investors faced with recession risk really have to ask three questions. How likely is a recession? How bad it's going to be? And then what kind of risk is reflected in markets? You know, we take a pretty negative view on the first question. We think there's a high probability of recession. But the relatively mild nature of the recession means that credit spreads in many sectors that are already wider than historical averages are adequately compensating you for that risk. And with interest rates as elevated as they are right now, you're getting paid to be more defensive at this time and wait for better entry points to move into riskier assets. Terrific. So thank you, Matt. Now, Maria, you contributed the third theme, which is also related to some of the issues that Matt raised uh, in his themes. Uh, and your, your theme is called equity analysts still expecting a no landing outcome are in for a surprise. Why don't you give us a summary of your theme? Sure. Yeah. And it definitely connects in with what Matt, you know, Matt's uh, work and what he just went through. And corporate earnings trends are, I think, an important cycle indicator that we monitor as well, particularly for me as a strategist, connecting it to, to the markets much more directly. Although... To be fair, corporate earnings do tend to lag, uh, but the latest data from Q1 2023 shows that earnings were stronger than expected. We saw a smaller decline of a little over 1% compared to the projected 5% decrease that street analysts were expecting. And surprisingly, all industries had the majority of companies surprised to the upside. So this doesn't really sound like we're heading for a recession, although to be fair, 1% decline is still decline. A problem that we spotted, and this is what we were trying to highlight in, in this report, is the continued strength we saw 
in the one sector where the Fed is really aiming to soften demand, which is in consumer discretionary. Here I'm including leisure, hospitality, restaurants, just to name a few of the areas that are keeping inflation above the Fed's comfort zone. And in that sector, 82% of companies surprised to the upside on both top line revenues and bottom line earnings, which means that even as they continue to pass through price increases, they're not seeing a slowdown in nominal demand. This is problematic because it doesn't show signs of consumer fatigue that would likely be the first signs of the Fed being successful in bringing inflation down in these areas, nor is it consistent with a looming recession. So because of the resilience we've seen in corporate earnings, we think bottom-up analyst expectations have remained optimistic. Street analysts expect just a decline of 1.4% in 2023 compared to last year, but all of that is occurring in the first half of the year, that that's what they expect. And then we see an expected reacceleration in the second half. Now, bottom-up analysts matter because, you know, have you ever evaluated a stock or an index on the basis of its forward PE ratio? That forward E, right, the denominator in that calculation comes from some aggregation of their estimates. So the determination whether stocks are cheap or expensive can rely heavily on their views. Our brief summary points out this as a risk because in past recessions, S&P 500 earnings per share typically declined by 10 to 20%, even during high inflation periods of like the 70s and the 80s. And in the current scenario, we have a determined government institution striving for its inflation goal. It's just challenging to see how the economy can avoid a recession, given the persistent price pressures that we're observing. If analysts are expecting a 1.4% decline in earnings for this year, but we're still seeing strength in, say, the consumer discretionary sector. Where is the expected decline going to be coming from? Yeah, and that's that's something we hit on the report as well. It's, it's coming mainly from the commodity sector, energy and materials. Energy earnings are expected to be down in the range of 20 to 30 percent this year. Materials are a little bit less. But my concern is that this is largely reflecting the decline in commodities prices that we've already seen. So it's sort of reflecting this backward-looking data. For example, compared to Q2 of last year, right, Q2 2022, the Bloomberg Commodity Index on average is down a little over 20%. Otherwise, there's also a little bit of expected weakness to continue in tech, but only out to the second quarter and then again there's this sort of expected recovery in the second half of the year. It's just not really a profile that would be consistent with a broader recession. When the market adjusts its expectations, sometimes funny things happen. So if there is going to be an adjustment in expectations coming, what might this mean for risk assets? Yeah. And um, so I think there's going to be an adjustment in bottom-up analyst expectations, but that that actually usually lags the adjustment that comes to market valuation. So specifically, say S&P 500 PE ratios. You see sort of this steady progression of PE ratio slowly coming down in the lead up to every recession really going back to the 1950s. And that that hasn't happened. The thing is that the, the timing of that adjustment and the magnitude are really hard to predict. So I'm reluctant to make a definitive call on you know what that's going to look like, when it's going to happen, and how much it's gonna happen. But that's okay because we actually have other proprietary tools, one of which was developed by Matt called the, the Bull Bear Market Indicator. 
And that tells us that we're in a period where bonds typically outperform equities. So with that signal, you combine in what we're seeing on corporate earnings, what I just talked about with elevated valuations, at least that tells us that for the foreseeable future, and in particular, especially when we start to see the data and corporate earnings start to underwhelm expectations, high quality fixed income should outperform equities. So a good time for bonds, maybe not so good for equities and then foreseeable future. Right. Yep. That, that is our outlook. So let's turn to Paul, who attributed the last theme, uh, but certainly not the least uh, in the publication. Mm -hmm. It's a topic that a lot of people think about and have a, a, you know, a strong attachment to because it's so important in our American society. And yours is entitled... The dollar's status as the preeminent reserve currency remains secure. So let's start, if you could just give us a summary of your theme. Yeah, sure. So, you know, there's been a lot of discussion in recent months about the dollar's role as the preeminent reserve currency. People are questioning whether the dollar is on the verge of losing its status and whether some other currency will come along and knock it off its pedestal, much like the dollar did to the British pound in the wake of World War II. My quick take on this is that there are some things that are happening that likely will favor other currencies over the dollar, but those are really slow processes and the dollar roll looks secure for the foreseeable future. Why are people worried about this? What, what gives them uh, agita about the dollar as their reserve currency? I think there are a few reasons for this. For one, we actually have seen a gradual decline in the percentage that the dollar comprises in total allocated reserves from about 65% in 2014 to about 58% as of Q4 of last year. So there already has been a slow, steady decline in the use of dollars as a reserve currency, but the US dollar is still pretty dominant. The next closest competitors are the Euro, which has just a little over 20% of allocated reserves. And that's followed by the Japanese yen, which has a little over 5%. And, you know, it makes sense that other currencies from other large growing economies that account for a significant percentage of total world trade should represent a growing percentage of reserves. And then there are geopolitical developments that have focused more attention on this topic. We've seen Russian and other countries' officials allocating away from dollar reserves as a result of U.S. sanctions and, and other things. And related to this, you know, we've increasingly heard of efforts by certain countries to accept payment in currencies other than the dollar in exchange for oil and other commodities. And there's also been talk of currency arrangements around the BRICS, for example, and other country groupings. And th there are also domestic political developments here in the U.S., like the recent debt ceiling standoff, which also add fuel to the fire. So any threat of non-payment or defaults, um, the probability of which went up a little bit for a little while there ahead of the debt ceiling agreement. Those kinds of things make any investor, including foreign reserve managers, a bit skittish. And the fact that the debt ceiling rears its head every few years, it's not just a one-off. So, so that's something that could continue to weigh on the dollar. And then finally, you know, people seem to reference the bit of dollar weakness that we've seen since late last year as sort of a proximate sign that the dollar is losing its dominance. Um, but we don't, we don't view dollar weakness as having any significant bearing on or as a signal of the dollar status as a reserve currency. And in fact, in the short run, dollar weakness is 
often associated with foreign reserves managers building up their dollar reserves. And the flip side of that is that when the dollar is strong, foreign reserve managers sell dollars to support their local currencies, which is what we saw late last year. So just to sum all of that up, I, I do think it makes sense that other countries share in global GDP and their share in global trade should drive the use of their currencies as reserves higher and geopolitical and domestic political events will take the shine off the US dollar to some extent. But I don't see the dollar losing its status as the preeminent reserve currency anytime soon. So just in a nutshell, despite all of these forces that are arrayed seemingly against the dollar remaining as the reserve currency, you're still able to draw the conclusion that its, its status remains secure. So how are you able to draw this conclusion? Yeah. So, I mean, for one, as I mentioned, the dollar accounts for 58% of reserves, um, while its closest competitor, the euro, has just 20%. Um, and it's not just in reserves. The dollar also continues to dominate in terms of cross-border payments and so forth. So, so all that gives the dollar at least some cushion. You know, we also need to think about why demand for the dollar as a reserve currency is so strong. And that gets to the fact that the U.S. is the largest economy. Its share in global trade is large. It has the largest, deepest, and most liquid capital markets in the world. Um, its policy frameworks and policy management are, for the most part, prudent and predictable and based on the rule of law. Um, and there are no, no significant impediments uh, in terms of the free movement of capital, as in there are no capital controls. Um, and there's also something to the notion that the U.S. is powerful politically and militarily, so it can defend its interests around the world. Um, you know, other, other currencies, other potential reserve currencies also have a lot of things going for them in a lot of these respects. They're getting better in some of those factors, but they just don't measure up against the dollar across all of those factors. It, it sounds like uh, it's, it, it could remain uh, in this status for quite some time, but how could you see it changing? How would you see other currencies uh, ratcheting up their position relative to the dollar? Yeah, great question. So let's let's take the Chinese renminbi and the euro, for example. You know, I see I see these two currencies as the most likely challengers to the dollar in terms of its status as the preeminent reserve currency. Uh, the renminbi and the euro both represent some of the largest economies in the world. They both account for large chunks of world trade. Europe has large, deep, and liquid capital markets. China a bit less so, but it's it's coming along in that respect. So it makes sense that their currency's share in reserves should be large. In China's case, especially, the renminbi's share has grown in recent years, but it's still less than 3%. So, you know, I would think that it should be more than that. But, but there are other things, um, structural factors that are holding them back. And there are things that I don't really see changing very much or very fast. So in, in China's case, its capital markets are still maturing. There's also the notion that Chinese policy and its legal system aren't entirely predictable or based on the rule of law. But even more importantly, from the standpoint of foreign reserves managers, China has capital controls. So it's not easy or straightforward to move funds into or out of China or Chinese instruments. And this likely won't change anytime soon since Chinese policymakers are reluctant to lift capital controls 
out of fear of unleashing a wave of capital flight out of China. For Europe and the Euro, it has other strengths and weaknesses. Its capital markets are large and liquid. Its policy and legal system are prudent and predictable and based on the rule of law, et cetera, et cetera. But it lacks strong and centralized political and fiscal governance. Most of, most of the power politically and fiscally resides with national governments and not with the EU and the Eurozone. So that can make policy a little bit more disjointed and unpredictable. And related to that, Europe isn't currently a big military power, which makes it somewhat dependent on the U.S. in terms of defending its interests around the world. Um, so, you know, all of these things are slowly changing in ways that will likely benefit the renminbi and the euro in terms of their roles as reserve currencies. But the changes are happening at a glacial pace. And that's why I don't see the U.S. dollar losing its status as the preeminent reserve currency for quite a while. Well, thanks for that summary. It certainly sounds as if this is a question not just of economic strength, but geopolitical strength as well and stability. That's right. Again, Paul's theme that he contributed has a, all the, the data points that he referenced are in, in chart form. And again, I encourage everyone to check it out in the, in the new publication on our website. So I want to thank uh, all of you again for uh, coming to the podcast today. Is there any final message you'd like to share with our listeners? Really just want to thank everyone for listening to the podcast and reading the new publication. Uh, we really appreciate all the support. Well, thank you, Matt. And thank you, Maria and Paul. Again, congrats on your new publication. And thanks again for your time. Please come again and visit us soon. Absolutely. Now, now before we leave, uh, we want to take a minute to answer a listener question. Now, Leigh from Connecticut had a question for portfolio manager Evan Serdensky, who was our guest on episode 31 of Macro Markets. Leigh emailed us the following question. When Evan was describing the market response to lower rates, he said, quote, with rates resetting lower, credit spreads are now naturally wider, unquote. What does he mean by naturally? So here's Evan's response. There are two ways to think about the word naturally here in this context. First, there is generally a strong correlation between lower rates, recession odds, and wider spreads. And second, there is a sticky yield phenomenon in credit, especially when treasury rates move more quickly one way or the other and credit spreads tend to adjust to absorb or expand in response to those local rate moves. Well, thanks again for your question, Lay, and thanks to Evan for his answer. And thanks to all of you who have joined us for our podcast. If you like what you are hearing, please rate us five stars. If you have any questions for Matt, Maria, Paul, or any of our podcast guests, please send them to macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com, and we will do our best to answer them on a future episode or offline. I'm Jay Diamond, and we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership, including our new quarterly macro themes, visit guggenheiminvestments.com slash perspectives. So long. Important notices and disclosures. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Stock markets can be volatile. Investments in securities of small and medium capitalization companies may involve greater risk of loss and more abrupt fluctuations in market price. 
than investments in larger companies. The market value of fixed income securities will change in response to interest rate changes and market conditions, among other things. Investments in fixed income instruments are subject to the possibility that interest rates could rise, causing their value to decline. High-yield securities present more liquidity and credit risk than investment-grade bonds and may be subject to greater volatility. Investors in asset-backed securities, or ABS, including mortgage-backed securities, or MBS, and collateralized loan obligations, or CLOs, generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some asset-backed securities may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict, making their prices volatile, and are subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risk to investing in loans directly, such as credit, interest rate, counterparty, prepayment, liquidity and valuation risks. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated, and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only, and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product, or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions, and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. This podcast contains opinions of the author or speaker, but not necessarily those of Guggenheim Partners or its subsidiaries. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Guggenheim Investments represents the investment management businesses of Guggenheim Partners LLC. Securities are distributed by Guggenheim Funds Distributors LLC.